I'll let the waitress put the chairs up. Let the glasses that you broke. Form a picture of our leader. With a halo made of smoke. Let the golden oldie station crackle. And come through. With a final benediction we'll hum. Along to. Before we say goodnight. Let me talk about the ball game. And the weather show we care. Like a sound we didn't notice. Until it stopped and left us there. With the traffic and our heartbeats beating. In straight time, let our hatred and affection march in the same line. Before we say goodnight, oh, protect our secret handshake once more with feeling. Let the toast to absent members push through the ceiling. Before we say goodnight, before we say goodnight, let our arcing wrecking ball complain. I hate Winnipeg. Howdy, folks. I'm back. It's been a few weeks. I've been here and there and everywhere. I was in Canada for a bit, which was nice. Never been to the uh, eastern half of Canada before, so that was fun. Toronto, eh, fine. Um, the, the definition of mediocrity, and that's cool. It's better than being the definition of crap. But uh, Montreal, muy bien. Très bien. Uh, hate to give it to the frogs, but it's definitely, uh, it still feels like a city in a way that most American ones just have stopped feeling like because of, you know, just the endless march of capital and whatnot. Uh, I did see Barbie, and uh, I don't want to be a bro about it, but pretty bad. Not a good film. Uh, uh thank you it's no thank you uh i mean if you're gonna if you're gonna sell out right like and, and just embrace uh the realities of having to do ip and sequel based films to have a career in hollywood do it the way ben wheatley did it when he just said sure i'll make the meg 2 whatever instead of being like no we're gonna turn this into a statement about something about what i don't know uh 
But yeah, maybe it's just because I'm a guy and it wasn't for me, you know? It was for ladies. And uh, so I respect women. Well, women are beautiful. Whatever they thought of the movie, sure, that's my opinion. I don't care. I haven't seen the Meg 2, though, yet. I didn't like the first one that much. A big problem with the Meg thing is the Meg is so big, and its mouth is so big, that it doesn't, like, chew people up in a cool way. He just swallows them, which is less cinematic, you know? Less uh, visceral. If only there was a way for, like, the Meg to, like, eat a bunch of people at once, maybe, you know, get in there and just start chomping through, uh, you know, a wave pool or something. I don't know. I'll probably see it now and, uh, in a, in a airplane or something. Mugshot iconic or not? Well, I mean, it is definitely going to be one of the more famous images of the 21st century. First time a, former president, uh, you know, put in front of the, the bill like that. So in that sense, of course, it's going to be iconic, as opposed to the, the separate question of, did he slay? I don't know. I mean, as with almost everything with Trump, that answer is predetermined by your pre-existing relationship with Trump. I don't, I think that there's a dream, though, on the right and on the left, or the liberals, I guess, I mean, there's Democrats and Republicans at the end of the day. You just, one team or the other, regardless of however, how you want to gild your political lily and, and uh, flatter yourself with radical ideology, there's Democrats and Republicans because those are the two things you can actually, those are the two projects you can actually participate in democratically. Everything else you want to participate in is, uh, if not illegal, at least in some sort of friction with the state or with capital. The only frictionless political engagement point is voting and participating in party politics. And that means Democrats or Republicans. So let's just get rid of left and right and say Democrats and Republicans. For a lot of Republicans, they think this is going to make him look badass. And a lot of people who maybe were on the fence are now going to like him. Lip, uh, Democrats say, no, this is going to finally like reveal him. He's in stark uh, terms as the criminal he is. Everyone has made up their decision about Trump. It doesn't fucking matter. God, it's so annoying that they didn't weigh him. This is this is what a two-tiered people. Uh, Trump supporters are complaining about a two-tiered justice system. It's a two-tiered justice system when you get to show up for court and just say, "Yeah, I'm 215 pounds. Just trust me," and they just go, "Okay." But it could be real. He, I mean, Ozempic is out there now. You could imagine Trump getting on it. He does look meltier lately, which is a really bad move for him aesthetically. Because those Ozempic people don't really look that good. You know, you just kind of look like a melted candle. But, yeah, they can, uh, there's going to be 500 court cases and whatnot, and there's going to be trials. Some of them are going to be televised. And you know what? Uh, it's still going to come down to basically a coin flip that will be determined more than anything by, like, uh, the first quarter of 2024's economic output, although maybe not even that anymore, maybe inflation in the first quarter of 2024, because it's very clear that uh, attitudes towards the government, towards Biden, uh, are fully detached from conventional understandings of a good economy. 
GDP, all that stuff, unemployment. Uh, these have been, on paper, the kind of things that should lead you to have a, you know, around 50% uh, approval rating, whereas Biden is stuck around 40. And it really was the Afghanistan, uh, if you look at the numbers, it was the Afghanistan where he dropped. And the thing is, we stopped thinking and talking about Afghanistan within a month, which was obviously predictable. But because the ambient temperature, I guess, is just as miserable as it was before that, uh, nobody felt the opinion if they had, nobody felt the need when they're getting polled who had decided fuck Biden after Afghanistan, never got the urge to be like, well, look at this GDP growth. Look at this employment. I'm going to change back to being pro-Biden. They never switched back because inflation is high. Uh, purchasing power is down. And that is for a country that is made up, yes, of workers and owners and capitalists and laborers, uh, objectively, but subjectively by consumers, where politics is organized around a consumer choice and where American flourishing is defined by consumer choices. A world where your, mor uh, your mortgage is more expensive and your dollar buys less is a bad economy, regardless of anything else. And now... The, the uh, Biden administration is making this insane uh, attempt to like basically make Americans eat their spinach with this Bidenomics push. They're like, no, no, you idiots. The economy's good. Don't you understand that? And then trying to connect it to him, which just completely ignores the way that political opinions are formed. You can't. You cannot set the terms by which people are evaluating you as president. You can only, uh, um, you can't set the terms. You can respond to changing situations. And the way that the Biden administration, if they wanted to like not lose, well, one thing is get rid of the 9 million year old crook who is at the top of the ticket, but then uh, to talk about abortion and cultural issues, which have seemed to have affected a persistent uh, shift among college-educated voters away from the GOP. And that means important swing suburbs are now much more likely to just be reflexively democratic than they were before Dobbs. But they don't want that world. They want one where they can uh, point to what they've actually accomplished, you know, and, and say, this is why you need me. You don't want it. They, although the only real case for the Democrats is a negative one, which is also true for Republicans. They only have a negative case for their voters. Stop the worst people from getting in. That is the only real case. But they don't want to consciously pitch on that because it de disempowers them. And part of it, I think, really does come down to the fact that Biden's surrounded by a bunch of people who lived in a different time. They lived in a different, uh, with a, in a different Democratic Party with a different media, uh, a media that could like uh, operate around central 
agreed upon premises that would permeate every level of American uh, news consumer, regardless of party. That's gone. We now have niche. Uh, we have niches, and that's it. And the economy is uh, is politically perceived through a consumption lens. Because, yes, people also are losing and getting jobs, all that shit that is supposed to, you know, power our understanding of the economy. But those are not seen, I don't think, as political uh, outcomes. If you get a job or lose a job, it is up to the fates. It's up to nature. It's up to God, because that's what we've done to the market. We've turned it into God. But only, of course, the part of the market where we are disempowered laborers, so that our disempowered labor can be uh, uh, can be our disempowered labor uh, can be perpetuated without accumulating any like real residual class based alienation. But how much things cost at the pump? <laughs> In the grocery store, where you are making the active choice to consume, those are places where politics still lives. So you can see those as political choices made by somebody. That's why they had those stickers with Biden pointing at the gas uh, readout saying, I did that. Now, there was a time when things like employment were considered political, but we have surpassed that time. We don't live there anymore, but these politicians, especially Democratic ones who are in their 80s, still do. That's the world they grew up with. That's the Democratic Party, the bread and butter, uh, uh, economy stupid, James Carville Democratic Party these people grew up with. But the very people who rang that bell for so long dismantled the political uh, control over markets and then had to adjust what the political was away from things like employment. So now, wherever um, we are, we experience the economy as workers, our alienation, whether it's getting a job, whether it's losing a job, not being able to find a job, having bad conditions at work, those things are felt natural. They're naturalized. There might be causes for them, but they are particular causes within a apolitical reality. Everything that we do economically that comes from a position of empowered consumption reflects our perceptions of ourselves as empowered political subjects, empowered political consumers, I should say, of media and then of, uh, of, who, of choices in the ballot box and in the voting booth. And so now you're, you, this is a different world where there, where there is no way that you can run on low unemployment if things cost more. Because low unemployment, you're just taking credit for something that everyone understands is not in your purview. You've spent 40 years trying to convince people of that fact, that politics is limited in its ability to interact with the economy. You try to have your cake and eat it too, 
But over time, that capacity erodes as like the reality of American life where no voting changes any of the underlying social stuff, underlying uh, class relationships. Politics then has to become something else. It moves where to the to the its own level. It uh, it finds its level, and its level is at consumption and spectacle. But even with that, they probably thanks to honestly now, uh, thanks to the shift in the center of gravity of the of the suburbs. As long as uh, even with like this situation we're in now with inflation that is lower than it was, but still higher than it was relatively recently, which is a relevant metric. Uh, and just a, uh, a, a, no accompanying like rise in, in uh, income. There's going to be like a general fuck this about the, the Biden administration and a, a, Republican could win in that environment, uh, but not Trump. Uh, and honestly, it's funny. The Republican who could win in 2024 easily, uh, probably Mitt Romney. Because culture war issues that had helped the Republicans equalize among certain voting groups and neutralize their disadvantages is now flipped on them, and it is now hurting them. But all they have now are people who are either, I mean, honestly, Trump is an interesting case because in some ways he's the worst possible person to run against Biden, but in others he's the best because of the current Republicans who might like become president or presidential candidate. He is the one who has the most instinctive understanding that social issues are a double-edged sword. The problem is he can only make the election about himself. He can only ever do that. And that worked in 2016 with an un, uh, pre-Dobbs, sort of uninitiated into what Trump means, uh, electorate. Now, eight years later, uh, it's a different story. But, like, any other Republican is going to have to run on social issues, and that's going to hurt them. They're going to gain in some places, but places that are electorally less important, like uh, the border on Texas, the Rio Grande Valley, the Rio Grande uh, counties uh, in southern Texas, where you're seeing a big shift among Hispanics, non-college-educated Hispanics, to uh, Trump. But that matters way less than what's happening in white suburbs and college towns in the Midwest. But it's a coin toss either way. It is 100% coin toss. Nothing that happens between now and Election Day saves some sort of catastrophic economic collapse. And definitely not including Trump getting convicted, if anything, is going to change it from being basically a 50-50 race. But it is the funniest thing right now is just watching the Democrats try to insist, no, no, this is what a good economy looks like. Like it did traditionally. It did in the uh, in the post seventies 
zero, uh, effectively zero uh, inflation economy, where things like, you know, price at the pump and stuff were weighed against things like employment, to now like an end stage where in order to maintain our sanity and prevent us from like violently opposing the state and preserving our illusion of political subjectivity, we reorient our understanding of what is political to where we feel empowered. And since we feel completely disempowered in at work, lowest fucking rates of uh, unionization ever, since we feel most disempowered at work, that's the place we're going to be least likely to process our ex life experience through a political lens and therefore give credit to Joe Biden if we get a job or whatever. But with the price of the pump, the price of the grocery store, where you're exercising your true franchise, that is the closest thing to the mandate of heaven an American president can try to uh, claim. And Biden right now is losing the mandate of heaven. But Trump has already lost it. This is why we're in this fascinating 50-50 loser shootout. Ramaswamy bombed, according to post-debate polls. This is interesting to me because I saw Ramaswamy out there. You could absolutely tell what his strategy was. And given his position, it's the smartest thing he could have done. Honestly, the only thing he could have done. Like maximal confrontation, maximal setting a, setting a, a, a distance from everyone else running, maximum attention. That's the move. That's the only move for a person in that position. Uh, who's not going to get, like people compare him to Pete Buttigieg, but Buttigieg was lifted on the wings of the mainstream media, a mainstream media that is credulously believed and listened to by uh, the Democrats in a way that Vivek cannot really uh, count on. Because, well, because uh, there is obviously a conservative infrastructure, media infrastructure that inf has influence on its voters, it's more divided. It's Its loyalty is split. And Trump dominates the majority of it. Uh, in 2020, since Biden was considered a sad anachronism and Bernie was beyond the pale, uh, Biden, Buttigieg seemed like the natural choice, the gay Obama, to the majority of the uh, media class. And so they, uh, they didn't need the CIA to tell him to do it. They self-unconsciously gravitated towards him like iron filings. And that helped the fact that this no-charisma dullard who really had nothing to say was able to stand out. Vivek can't do that. He's got to fucking pull the vet suicide vest. And he did. But as I'm watching it, I'm like, I guess I could see this working, but I could also see it wildly alienating the older suburbanites who vote for Trump or who vote in uh, Republican primaries. Yeah, they love that Trump is like a big, rude asshole. But they also viscerally identify at a personal level with him. So when he's a big root asshole, they're a big root asshole. Vivek is never going to be able to hold that level of uh, person pers personal relationship, that personification. 
So he just looks kind of like a whiny little prick, yelling, uh, uh, with a, like raising his hand like a fucking nerd. But he is preserving his vice presidential uh, bona fides because he's by being the most Trump ass kissing one. He's making Trump most likely to let bygones be bygones and nominate him. I still doubt that Trump nominate picks anybody who ran against him, though. There's plenty of other people that he can pick who did not run against him, like Carrie Lake. And I know she's on the outs because she took it too much for granted, and Trump got worried that he was she was going to upstage her. But I still think he picked somebody who did not actually run against him, because that's always a difficult uh circle to square, to be like, I love Trump, he's the best president we've ever had, but also he can't be president again. Yeah, see, I can't, this is good, he was talking about how he liked Vivek, but he said, I can't believe this guy is running against me. I don't think he's going to be able to let that go. But, in a long game, a long-term goal, uh, effort to try to secure a position in the post-Trump GOP, it's a smart move. I still think he's probably going to end up getting uh, swamped by somebody, some black swan that we can't even predict, the way that Trump was very difficult to predict in 2015. Because the 2016 Democrats, going into that election, Republicans rather, were completely rudderless and fucked. They were in a Democrat-style malaise. They were about to dominate Jeb fucking Bush. They just, they lost any kind of credibility with anybody, including right-wingers, because of their pathetic uh, failure to uh, defeat the Obungler and their weddedness, their, their religious weddingness to uh, conservative orthodoxy, which was no longer stirring the loins in a post-Obungler uh, era. And you're like, what's going to happen with this party? And then fucking Trump just cannonballs into the race and changes the complexion of the whole thing. And I think that 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 hole gets filled one way or another. And that means someone is going to fill that hole for the Republicans. I don't know who it is, though, and I don't think you can really predict. I don't think it's going to be Vivek, though. I think he's going to be like a... Uh, more like a, a Von Schleer style character, just sort of oozing in the background and eventually probably getting uh, his wings clipped. Someone asking about Fetterman succeeding Bernie. I mean, we have to assume that the left wing standard holder within the Democratic Party post Bernie is going to be in every respect a step down because it's it is the recession of a movement. It's sort of like the the, the falling away of a uh, of a formation. Something else will emerge later, as I have said many times, but it probably will not be at the national democratic level. But you're still going to have these emerging polls around, you know, the remnants of that. And I think Fetterman would have been the guy if he was not so uh, physically shaky. Uh, I mean, after getting that stroke, he won from five points in a Republican-leaning swing state at that point. Uh, one Trump counties. I mean, just being a big beefy guy, it just makes so much of the cultural uh, garb of the Democrats 
as a bunch of weak pussies, uh, not adhere. It's just that simple, simple symbolism. But like, if a Fetter if if he were to get better, Fetterman gets better, man, and really recover from the stroke and like maintain some sort of fire in the belly and desire to like push forward politically. Uh, I think he would have a better chance of getting the nomination than Bernie did, but consequently, his nomination would be less have less like radical implications than Bernie's would have. Someone says Doug Burgum said he would not support he would not support a federal ban on abortion or policing teachers, you know, about about trans groomering or whatever the fuck because of states rights which are both conservative and general election friendly. You'd think so. And yes, hypothetically conservative friendly, but no no longer uh, republican friendly. No longer friendly uh, in the eyes of these sort of republicans who for whom conflict uh and and maximal hostility uh, is the mark of political virtue now and there's no amount of like uh logical consistency that's going to change that you you can't say oh but you support states rights they don't give a fuck never really did I'm sorry. You get what you get. Sometimes we talk about uh, about uh, the mysteries of existence. Sometimes we talk about uh, the Senate. I do think that the hostility to public up to uh, public school teachers is another one of those things that does really well among the childless weirdos who go to school uh, to school board meetings and yell at everybody, but not so well against those fucking suburbanites, most of whom are relatively happy with their public schools, uh, who do the voting. Yeah, that's a very good point. Is like what what Republican pisses off Democrats the most? And it will always have to be Trump. He's number one. So that's the guy you have to support. Because if you don't support him, you are essentially giving in to them. Which is, of course, the opposite of how Democrats have traditionally worked. Uh like look two thousand look at two thousand four when they were so terrified of pissing off Republicans that they uh, fled en masse from the anti-war standard bearer who was leading in the polls to a, a Iraq war vet or a Vietnam war veteran who had voted for the war in Iraq because they were scared of Republicans. They would, did not want to make them mad. They wanted to kind of sneak in the back door. That's because they had been generationally traumatized by nine 11 as everyone was in one way or another. 
Nikki Haley is hilarious. She's the funniest one because she so clearly just wants to will it back to being 2004. Like she, she just wants that old, like Pence does too, but you know, he's mostly just doddering on. She seems to have this genuine uh, jihadist mindset to try to get us back to national greatness, foreign policy, uh, supply side nostrums, political, uh, economically, uh, free trade. Uh, it's like, yeah, sure. If you have a time machine. I mean, I, yeah, a lot of people probably don't like teachers, though, because, you know, it's the experience of teach of being taught sucks and it gets worse every year. Because the experience of and the experience of being a teacher also gets worse. Hey, teacher, leave those kids alone. Not for teacher. Very good. All right, let's do a pack of cards here. Maybe a uh, existential insight will occur while I'm doing this. We'll see. I do think Munich is a good movie. I think Spielberg was cooking with that one. For sure. All right, here we go. We've got a military asset. The AMX-30 tank. Look at these bad boys. Look at these hunks of metal. Huh? We love our, we love our tanks, don't we? We love our armor. The AMX-30 main battle tank made by the French, uh-oh, was used by both coalition and Iraqi forces during Operation Desert Storm. Weird, again, how that happens. How the Iraqis get to hold all this Western technology. Odd. Uh, it, it, it's weird how uh, Hitler, too, got a hold of all this Western military technology. I'm sure he stole it or something. It carries a crew of four and has an infrared light system for night operations. Designed for the in the late 1960s, it has a 105-millimeter gun and a turret-mounted 7.62-millimeter machine gun. Uh, it's French, so it's probably bad at fighting. Am I right? Manufacturer. Atelier de Construction Rosin. Speed, 40.4 miles per hour. Range, 373 miles. Armaments, 105-millimeter main gun. 20-millimeter coastal cannon. Cool. Coastal cannon. Nice. And a 7.62 millimeter machine gun with a crew of six hanging out in there, eating brie.
You got a military skill. Collect and report information. This is very important, obviously. This is very important. Collecting and reporting information. When soldiers are on patrol, they are to report anything of interest to their leader. U.S. Army Rangers remember how and what to report by using the letters of the word salute. S, size, the number of personnel of size uh, of sub, or size of subject or object. Uh, two, or uh, A, activity, what they were doing. L, location, grid coordinates or reference point. U, unit, clothing, patches, symbols, or ID numbers. T, time, when the activity occurred. E, equipment, all equipment associated with the activity. Oh, that's nice. They gave him a little mnemonic device. That's adorable. We got personnel. We got the narcs of the police, or the, we got the narcs of the army, the military police, the Jack Reachers, if you will. Whether it is the Shore Patrol in the U.S. Navy, I am the motherfucking Shore Patrol motherfucker, Jack Nicholson, uh, the airport police of the U.S. Air Force, or the military police in the U.S. Army. Air police sounds way cooler than I bet it actually is. Each of the jurisdictions to enforce the Uniform Code of Regulations on all service member personnel. Off military reservations, civilian jurisdiction takes precedence, but major crimes committed on military reservations are investigated by the military police the Judge Advocate's Office, and the Federal Bureau of Investigations, like JAG, like NCIS. Here's a guy. Here's a leader. Yeah, are they going to be a space police for the Space Force? We got Mikhail Gorbachev, one of the biggest chumps uh, in the 20th century. Not a bad guy, I really don't think. I think a well-intentioned person, but fundamentally a chump. He thought, okay, we're going we're gonna, to uh, end communism, and as a reward, you, the West, are going to help us transition into a, a social democratic economy integrated, like the rest of Europe, into the American system. And the United States said, oh, that's adorable. No, you are outside of the imperial uh, sphere. You are being encountered by the, mo the mothership, and you will be uh, broken and turned into scrap like everybody else. And he didn't see that one coming. Uh, Gorbachev, who was known for his innovative improvements and new ideas, that's for sure, became the youngest member of the Politburo in 1980 and general secretary of the Communist Party, head of the USSR in 1985. He instituted the policies of glasnost and perestroika, openness and rebuilding, and was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1990. During Operation Desert Storm, he tried to negotiate Iraq's withdrawal from Kuwait. How'd that go, Mikhail? Born Prisonovili near Stravopol, USSR. Stavropol. Birthday, March 2nd, 1931. Mos uh, education, Moscow State University. Moscow, USSR. Yeah, RIP to that guy. He didn't get that. The only reason that we had built that a beautiful social democratic citadel in Western Europe was to contain and undermine the communist Russians. As soon as communism is demobilized, there is no incentive to do anything other than piece by piece break down every piece of public goods in existence, starting where 
the resistance will be lightest. And of course, that's outside of the machine itself. So countries being integrated into it, like Russia, get to be uh, liquidated. And then, of course, they leave in power this uh, structure, hundreds of millions of people, thousands of nuclear missiles and a modern military, and says to them, uh, yeah, now enjoy vassal status. What are they going to do? They're going to see if the buttons work. Astounding lack of foresight by the U.S., but again, no blowback is actually uh, a blowback because the even if the results are unintended, they are always then turned into opportunities because of the commanding position, because the ability to act that is monopolized by the United States at the global level. That means every situation can be turned to your uh, uh, best interests, which is one of the reasons that people who reason backwards about every social revolt in the world as having to be an American op, because as it unfolds, the United States ends up benefiting from it, is uh, ridiculous. It, it is child, it's childlike thinking. America dominates because any spontaneous and and meaning and um, sincere social um, resistance is going to be unorganized and probably defeated. But the uh, un the pressure on the state that uh, it creates will persist and can be exploited by the one power that can act, the United States. Sometimes the United States orchestrates things when it has to, but for the most part, it doesn't have to. And that's that's one of the things that like super black-pilled conspiracy people uh, who think they're telling you like deep, hard truths are actually being incredibly naive because they assume that the United States has to have that level of conspiratorial uh, interference going on in order to benefit from everything. Not that its role as imperial hegemon makes that the default state everywhere. And we can't blame Gorby too much, though, because the USSR really was French-fried and fucked by that point. And there was going to be some sort of crisis, some sort of uh, challenge, you know? But the way he went about it, not the right way. This is Iceland here. I don't know. Again, I, all the fucking Scandinavian countries run together. I don't know if we have this one before. I don't think so. Lying on the North Atlantic, Iceland is located on islands built of recent volcanic activity. The Icelandic parliament, the Althing, is the oldest surviving government of its type in the world, dating from about 930. Since Iceland was neutral during World War II, it was not allowed to join the United Nations until 1946. For Operation Desert Storm, Iceland supplied economic support. Geographic area, 39,789 square miles. Population, 250,000. Language, Icelandic. Predominant religious, evangelical Lutheranism. Everyone's favorite kind. Capital Reykjavik, government type, constitutional republic. Head of government, Prime Minister Steingrimur Hermansson. Uh... I don't know what economic support. Herring? Did they send him some fish? Did they send him some cod that they won in the cod war with England?
The Icelanders are interesting. They did have a, a, a very advanced early form of uh, dem democracy, as you could imagine, in a situation where there's just no pre-existing hierarchy. Because, you know, that's how uh, we get, like, the transition from feudalism to democracy taking as long as it does is because you have this slave society that its political authority collapses, but the uh, uh, disparities in control of resources persists and so those become classes that persist uh and then fucking iceland is a bunch of people showing up with a couple of uh, thralls and some fucking bearskins but they have i know in uh in scandinavia in iceland you there's a big book uh that shows how everyone is related to one another so you can make sure that you're not dating a first cousin or something they really need to do like some sort of uh Midsummer style uh, genetic diversity program because otherwise it's going to be a problem. All right, we've got another piece of uh, equipment. We've got the old CH46 C Knight. Look at this bad boy. We got the C Knight. I see a knight right here, that's for sure. Whether transporting combat-ready marines ashore during amphibious assault, transporting cargo and munitions, or bringing 15 litters of wounded aboard a hospital ship, the Sea Knight has served both the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Marines for almost three decades. From Vietnam to the Persian Gulf, this versatile twin-rotor helicopter has proven its durability. It played a vital role in Operation Desert Storm, including sea rescue of downed Allied pilots. Manufacture Boeing helicopter. Speed 167 miles per hour. Range 75 miles. Armament, two 50 caliber machine guns or 7.62 millimeter machine guns. Crew of three, 25 troops. I like the guys with the two rotors. They're cool. They're big, they're big fat boys. We love them. All right, we've got the Newport class tank landing ship otherwise known as an LST. Larger and faster than the classic LST workhorses of World War II amphibious landings, LSTs are the Newport... are the... of the Newport class are the first to depart from the drop-bow door and use a 112-foot ramp to land tanks and cargo vehicles onto beaches. A gate at the stern enables offloading amphibious vehicles into the water. The Newport LST-1179 and the Fairfax County LST-1193, both out of Norfolk, Virginia, were part of Operation Desert Storm. Displacement, 8,450 tons fully loaded. Length, uh, 522 feet. Speed, 22 knots. Armament, one, uh, four 50 caliber machine guns and one Phalanx CIWS. Crew, 250 with 400 troops it can carry. We love to land an amphibious group in the littoral region. We love a good littoral region. There's so many good words related to rivers and estuaries. Brackish, one of the best ones. Brackish, that is water that is mixture of salty and fresh. Brackish, often found at the uh, intersections of rivers and uh, oceans. Brackish is a good one. Littoral, riparian, come on. Folks, you, there are very few words better than riparian. 
Oh, some other ones that are related to water. Benthic? Water-based words, some of the best. Nautical terminology, some of the best we've got. Certainly the more um, poetic. The way of water. Boatswain. Boats or coxswain. Coxswain? Boatswain? Poop deck. Stygian. There you go. Stygian is a great word, and it is water-related. Got a bosun and a cosin. We've got intelligence file. Conserving energy. Come on, folks. Let's do it. Let's conserve energy. Let's do it, please. Light bulb on. Dependence on oil from the Persian Gulf can be reduced by conserving energy. Fuck you. How dare you. Fuck you. Some simple energy-saving steps include keeping tires inflated to recommended pressure, shutting fireplace vents, closing curtains during summer, and opening them during winter, and changing or cleaning furnace air conditioner litters regularly. This is the WEF bug-eating agenda right here. This is uh, Agenda 21. This is the 15-minute city. This is Global Homo right here in card form. How dare you tell me to fucking keep my tires inflated. I will set fire to your home. How do you like that? How do you like that for conserving energy? There was actually a miniature... Get, uh, uh, there was like a two-day uh, news cycle during the 2008 campaign when uh, the Obungler was talking about energy conservation, and he said the thing about inflating your tires. He said the thing about, hey, uh, you know, uh, you're worried about uh, gas prices. You can save gas by uh, keeping your uh, tires inflated. Uh, more efficient. And... McCain went absolutely sicko mode on him. He was like, inflate your tire? What? And they actually had a little moment where they were holding up uh, tire gauges at McCain rallies to just try to mock and belittle Obama. It didn't really work. Uh, most people kind of ignored it, but it was definitely a, a thing that triggered conservatives, telling them to keep their tires inflated. Because, you know, you're claiming that, like, what liberals don't get is that when they say something that is just reasonable common sense, like, they are appealing to an authority that they are constituent of. Like, people who are alienated from the cultural uh, zeitgeist, the way conservatives are, they start, they have been since the, since the 60s, since the cultural revolution of the 1960s and 70s. Uh, things like common sense... Things, things like general consensus scientific ideas become uh, tools of an alienate of an enemy power really that that wields those things over you so when you tell them to do something they go insane like there there is a there were stories in California. I don't know if they still do this, but for a while they would send you, a, and they may have stopped for this reason. They send you, if you um, consumed less than like the average consumer during a given period, uh, less energy, they would send you a card congratulating you. They'd say, you you were a uh, you used less energy than the average Californian in the third quarter. Thank you very much. There were people who got that and then self-consciously used more energy. 
which is a thing that a liberal could never conceive of. Getting a pat on the back from uh, an objective observer about how good you are, that's crack. A head pat from teacher? Conservatives now think the teacher is full of shit. The teacher's on the uh, on the enemy side and has been since they fucking took over the schools after the 60s and 70s. They couldn't take over the institutions, so they took over the schools and set. Uh, and that whole time, they just thought they were continuing a liberal consensus tradition that had been established by World War II. And they were. But what they didn't realize is that the entire time that that liberal consensus was being was persisting throughout the world, throughout the, um, the country, and being metabolized by its citizens, there was always a thread of like vituperative alienation from it. Like starting even before the, the social revolution of the 60s and 70s. Uh, like uh, around, like John Birch Society figures around small American manufacturers and like uh, uh, hard pressed small business owners in the Midwest specifically. Ohio, of course, the home of. Robert Taft being like the beating heart of this reaction, this Main Street Republican hostility to the New Deal state and cultural apparatus. The thing was, though, for most of the, the, the 20th century, it was a fringe group. It wasn't even a majority of Republicans. And they occasionally were able to do things like hustle their way to inflicting uh, Barry Goldwater on the Republican Party in 1964. Uh, but that was like a... a uh, anomaly and an expression of like a concentrated uh, uh, organizing capacity that events hadn't caught up to yet. But then the 70s hits, which is a crisis, not just culturally, but also economically, that births out of it a new disempowered working class that has had its back effectively broken, its ability to negotiate politically for gains permanently removed, and a new cultural reality based on the uh, racial and gender ideas that the rebellious youth had proposed in the 60s and 70s. And when you have that, now a movement that had been restricted to a specific class strata, medium-sized owners from you know shopkeepers to factory owners, now encompass not only a bigger chunk of, uh, of the rich, but a uh, who are now invested in a political program that would enrich them, but also among workers who were no longer able to assert uh, a political power as workers, but could interact with politic politics as just an American subject shorn of, of class uh, interests who was alienated for cultural reasons from the consensus that emerged out of the 60s and 70s. The, the, the cultural politics on top of the new neoliberal economic machinery. And now we're in a situation where a solid 40% of Americans of all different races and specifically uh, uh, classes have a fundamental alienation from not just uh, liberal values, but all the institutions that they associate with liberal values, which is now basically all of them. 
And again, the John Birch Society was there in 1952, but that was a bunch of cranky, like chocolate candy manufacturers. It was just, it was a network of cranks stewing in their offices and thinking about how, how, how their fucking employees were all uh, gold bricking on them. And who were not getting the real benefits, or at least could not imagine themselves receiving the real benefits that Wall Street got from opening up Europe after World War II. Now that's a generalized hostility. And that means that you can no longer assert any uh, apolitical, objective uh, judgment towards people. They will take it politically. So you cannot tell them to not to blow up their tires or to conserve energy or do anything else that just makes sense. Including, of course, take a vaccine. Don't want to talk about that shit. I literally don't care because I can't know any better. All I know is that traditionally, hey, there's a disease. Here's a fucking uh, vaccine for it. We did it really quickly so that we could get it out there as fast as possible, would have been accepted by 90% of the population. Not saying it would have been right or wrong, I don't care, shut up. Not doing my own research, I refuse. I'm saying that that sequence of events would have been unquestioned by most people. All right, we got a leader here. Oh, very crucial to the war effort. Very important. We've got Brian Mulroney, Prime Minister of Canada. Brian motherfucking Mulroney, the PM of Canada, the Conservative Party. Oh, I'm sorry, they were the Progressive Conservative Party. My favorite and most Canadian political party name, the Progressive Conservative Party. It really makes them sound like a post-colonial government in like, Africa or the Middle East, where you have those kind of goofy named parties like the uh, like the the radical liberals or whatever, or no, like uh, well, well, here's a good example in Jamaica. I think it is the Labour Party is the right wing party. After being a lawyer in Montreal, Mulroney became an executive at Iron Ore Co. in Canada in 1976, president in 1977. A literal oil executive. That's so funny that you guys just honestly had the fucking, uh, the, the Daniel Plainview of Alberta just be the president. Like, whatever. He was elected to parliament as the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party in 1983. When the ruling party changed, he was promoted to prime minister in 1984. Born Bay Corneau near Quebec City, Canada. Birth date, March 20th, 1939. Education, Saint Francis Xavier University, Antigonish, uh, Nova Scotia, Canada, Laval University, Quebec, Quebec, Canada. So this is very interesting. You got a guy, Mulroney, Mulroney, uh, presumably an Anglo. From Quebec, what's going on? Uh, the United States is not the only Western Hemisphere country to get a lot of Irish Catholic immigrants during uh, the 19th and early 20th centuries. Canada got them too, but thanks to the religious divide, 
in Canada, they largely settled in Quebec because it was Catholic. And place like, say, for example, Toronto was literally run by the Orange Order until the 1960s. And in fact, Ireland and Montreal, uh, uh, Ireland and uh, Quebec were actually very similar uh, political and economic uh, units. They were both uh, stagnant, backward economies whose educational system, uh, uh, welfare system, uh, and in a large sense, economy was dominated by the Catholic Church, which, of course, is allergic to the sort of dynamism that bourgeois Protestant capitalism uh, inculcates in an area. And so you had a situation where Quebec was the poorest part of Canada, much poorer than the white the uh, white part. Sorry, it's sounding like I'm a, an orangeman there. The, uh, the English-speaking part, uh, the orange part. And you had the situation where they were a total backwater. In Ireland, they were like, good, that's fine. Fuck you, because they were independent. Uh, but in... Uh, Canada, they were part of this, they were stitched to this fucking Anglo monster. Uh, and so they felt the need to compete. And so they were jump started into a competitive economic relationship to the rest of Canada, to Anglo Canada, by what is known as the Quiet Revolution. By the way, who is the Laval that everything in Quebec is named after? The, like the university, I saw a street named after it. It's not Pierre Laval, the prime minister of the Vichy Republic, is it? It's got to be some Canadian, but I don't know which one. I don't know them. I'm not, my Canadian history, especially before the, the 20th century, is not that great. Like Louis Riel and all that stuff, I don't really know that much about it. So the Quiet Revolution is this process by which the the hands of the Catholic Church are slowly released from like the uh, main currents of uh, French Canadian society. Like their control over education is removed. Uh, their control over uh, uh, welfare systems, and uh, there is this injection of dynamism into the uh, Quebec economy. They create uh, a hydroelectric company, uh, Quebec Hydro. That is like the basis for like a new sort of provincial economy. And of course, by doing this, they jumpstart a bourgeoisification of their society. And what happens? You get bourgeois nationalism. So almost the same moment you're getting the uh, Quiet Revolution, you're getting the Front de Liberation de Quebec emerge to do like a IRA-style, ETA-style terrorist attack uh, on the uh, French state, the Canadian state. And then a, the broader move towards a uh, a separatist politics around the figure of René Levasque, uh, who's sort of a, a French Rush Limbaugh-style guy who becomes uh, the premier in the 70s. But this process, this bourgeoisification, it happens everywhere, but only when it is forced into being. I think that's the only way to understand capitalist development. It will not emerge independently because social, wherever social forces uh, can assert themselves, they will. Uh, and in a place like Quebec, in a place like uh, Ireland, where you are sort of a, you are able to stagnate in a way that uh, advanced capitalist societies and also uh, post-colonial dominated societies can't. 
And that's that's the result of being strong enough as an independent polity to resist full colonization. The Irish by literally having a fucking war uh, in the early 20th century, and the French just by being so goddamn French all the time. Uh, And either way, though, these are these are uh, Catholic polities in a way that is now literally anachronistic, like nobody else was. Uh, Spain, speaking uh, of this process, was in the same situation in the late 19th century, but its position as one of the uh, like main competitor states in Europe, as opposed to a peripheral region like Ireland or uh, Quebec, was forced into a like a pell-mell sprint towards modernity that broke the country in half. Ireland and Montreal were gifted the ability to sort of do it at their own pace. And of course, Quebec does it first because they have more of a direct cultural and economic conflict uh, uh, with this greater Canadian polity they're part of, which the Irish didn't have to worry about. But they still, by the end of the 20th century, were pushed in that direction inevitably, just by, among other things, the fear of brain drain. People are just going to all leave again because what is considered the good life is no longer defined by the church. In a globalized world, it's defined by consumption and the ability to do that. And a, a, a traditional Catholic society cannot provide as much of an opportunity for that to happen. And so it has to be broken up and it will be broken up from within to persist it's, so that it, it's national identity, which supersedes everything post 19th century, uh, honestly, since Westphalia, can dominate. Like, just the fact that the French curse words are all religious blasphemies from the 1700s tells you what's going on. Like, France was the same time that... Uh, some French people essentially pressed eject on the collapsing French state and were able to create a little pocket France in the wilderness where the fact that it's wilderness and the fact that it's expropriated from others means that those social ferments are allayed for a bit. And so people can just keep being French. In France itself, that cannot be by the late, 19, by the late 1700s. You have social, social ferment explode into out, outright revolution spurred by economic collapse. Why? Because France could no longer spend at the same level that England could because it lost its colonies in the Seven Years' War. Someone says, I have bad Ireland takes. Please tell me what I got wrong. All right, last card. Geography. Baghdad. Oh, boy. Baghdad. A relatively young city. You think, oh, it's the Middle East. It must be super ancient. No, it's a, it's one of the first real like um, early modern project cities was the Abbasidian Empire, or the Abbasidian Dynasty, uh, Abbasid Dynasty building that Baghdad as a ready-made capital. Built by Caliph al-Mansur in 1762, 
and the design of three concentric circular walls surrounding the palace, armed guards, and the city, Baghdad became one of the major trade centers of the Muslim world. After being captured by British forces from Turkey in 1917, Baghdad became the capital of the new kingdom of Iraq in 1921. During Operation Desert Storm, Baghdad was attacked by air almost every day. You're goddamn right. You're goddamn right it was. Fuck those people, right? Blow them the fuck up. But I gotta say, we still did not do them as dirty as the fucking Mongols did, okay? The Mongols went ham on Baghdad to a degree that is uh, genuinely world historical. Uh, it all started because the caliph made the terrible decision to execute some of uh, the Mongol uh, diplomats who came to talk to them and demand their fealty. Always the wrong thing to do. It never works out for you. So they decided to go in there and just kill everybody. Uh, uh, they killed, they stacked the bodies, 200,000 people perhaps. Uh, and man, then they uh, destroyed the library of this center of Muslim learning. They say that the Tigris River was not red with blood. It was black from the ink of all the volumes that were thrown into it. Uh, not good, folks. So we didn't do that, right? We're all right. Just because we let all of their great treasures get looted and destroyed their infrastructure. Uh, uh, armed and trained a bunch of psychotic death squads. Uh, population, 4.65 million. Founded in 8th century AD. Location, central Iraq on the Tigris River, 330 miles from the Persian Gulf. Significance, capital. It's the capital, folks. It's the capital. Tell you right now, I am always swearing fealty to the Mongols when they show up. Always, 100% of the time. There's a 50-50 chance that they're just on a scouting mission and they'll just leave anyway. Unless you're in China. And if you're in China, they're here to stay. You just need to accept that. But, like, if you're, you know, like, the, how many, the Russians or the Poles or anybody, you go out there and you pick these fights, and it's like, you could have just stayed home and just given them some fucking fealty, and you probably never would have seen them again. There wasn't enough goddamn grass to feed all the horses in Europe. And, yeah. Like they, they they were checked in the Middle East. They were famously defeated by the Mameluke army uh, in uh, the... the uh, I don't think it was in Egypt. I think it was in what is now Israel. They, they beat them. So who's to say that they ever would have uh, even stuck around the fucking desert? Instead, you got to fucking uh, stand up for yourself and then get annihilated. Pledge allegiance to the great Khan, okay? If, I, if I'm your eunuch advisor, I'm going to wear a t-shirt with that on it every day, just in case that you heard tale that the Khan's forces are near. We love the Khan, don't we, folks? The great Khan! They call him great for a reason. Really tremendous.
I mean, he might kill you anyway, but you're definitely going down if he decides to make you a project. Let's not forget Kublai, Kublai Khan. Kublai. Uh, why did Norm, speaking of Canada, why did Norman Bethune do all the crazy shit he did and get himself killed in 1930s China? Because he was a G? I mean, he was a G. The guy was a fucking five-star pimp, the answer to that question. And the thing is, you can't judge yourself to those standards because there are very few of them. They're, they're, they're uh, apples in the rough, and he was one of them. Apples in the rough, that's not an expression. How are you going to, for example, just example, how are you going to say no to a group called the Golden Horde? Come on. It's literally golden. All right. Good to be back. Should be back next week. Talk to you then, folks. Take it sleazy.